Welcome to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. I'm your host, Les Shapiro. And I'm your co-host, Vic Lombardi. Now, each episode, we'll bring inspiring interviews with great athletes, celebrities, and the most brilliant minds in medicine on how to beat adversity to win in life. So thanks for spending time with us as we bring you one step closer to becoming your best unstoppable self. We are with Emily and Brian Daniels, husband and wife, and we're here to talk about Emily's story. And uh, let me take you back a couple of years when Emily was 29 years old, 2018. She was pregnant with her second child, and she was feeling some tightness in her chest. She went to the doctor and found out some shocking news, rocked her world. Turned out she had stage four lung cancer out of the blue, never smoked a day in her life. And Emily, I can relate. I've never smoked. I hardly ever drank. I worked out religiously. And I also was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, albeit at an, an older age than you. I'm 64, but it rocked my world. I can only imagine what it did to your world and to Brian's world when you got word about this. Yeah. I mean, I was pregnant. We had just been on a family vacation to Hawaii. I was, you know, exercising and feeling good throughout my pregnancy. Just felt a little funny and, you know, it was hard to take a deep breath and went to the emergency room and one test after another, they're like, well, we have, there's this mass in your lungs. We're not sure what it is. We're going to do a biopsy tomorrow. Um, They do the biopsy and I wake up alone in a recovery room in a hospital and my OB confirms, yeah, you have lung cancer. And I'm thinking at this point, I don't even really know what, what that means. Like, how can somebody like me that's never smoked, that's healthy, have lung cancer? So yeah, I mean, it was shocking, devastating, totally rocked our world. Uh, Emily, I went through a lot of what you've, you've gone through, of course. Um, in my case, I felt some things in the months leading up. Um, I felt some numbness in my jaw. I had a cough. My voice was very raspy. Uh, I was getting dizzy. Did you go in not having any major symptoms in the months leading up? You you went in because you felt some tightness in your chest and that was it? And boom, stage four? Because usually there's a there's a lead up to stage four where you do feel certain smaller symptoms. Yeah, and I think that's partially what's so scary and also what made it so shocking is that I had no cancer symptoms until my diagnosis. And even the tightness in my chest was a side effect from blood clots. So they did a CT scan, found out I had blood clots. That's what was causing the tightness. And then the the tumor there was, you know, a bonus that I didn't want. But yeah, it I mean, oddly enough, how these things work, I had no symptoms until later that week after my diagnosis. Then I had a really sharp pain in my chest. And I started getting some sharp pains from like, I could then tell where the tumors were, but up until that point, I had no coughing, no coughing up blood, no extra fatigue, nothing that I could pinpoint. Curious question from um, a non-lung cancer, cancer victim myself, Emily, yours and Les's, are you guys on the same cocktail of, uh, of chemo pills or have you guys spoken? Do you guys do the same? Is it the same structure here? So we see the same doctor. We see that we have the same rock star oncologist. I'm not exactly sure, Wes, are you EGFR? I am. I take two targeted therapies. One is Tegriso and one is called Tarsiva. 
And I take two as well, but mine are different. The one thing that, you know, we're really fortunate is that there's been a lot of research in lung cancer in the last, you know, five to 10 years. Had this happened to either of us, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, we literally wouldn't be here today. Right. Um, so these targeted therapies are amazing. And each of us take different pills that target our specific cancer. So we have different, what they call mutations. And so that leads to different targeted drugs, but a similar uh, method. And, you know, I listened to the podcast you guys did where you talked about your combination. And I had a very similar story where they were finally able to grow my cells and figure out what combination would work for me. Hold on a second. You just said, and and I guess I've had these conversations with Les before, but it just hit home. If you guys had been hit with this diagnosis 15 years ago, you wouldn't be here right now. Maybe even 10. Really? Yeah. Now, there's nothing, there, there was nothing in the stable of medicines that could have helped you survive. Yeah. I mean, Brian, when did electinib, when did it come on the market? I mean, the, the, the first really for Emily would have been 10 years ago is when the trial actually started for the first phase of targeted therapy that she was on. And even outside of that, we're lucky enough to have UCH in our backyard with Dr. Camage because in Emily's case, I don't know about, about yours less, you know, the, the, the standard method of treatment, even for Emily's, you know, ALK driven cancer didn't work at first. And had she been at another institution, they would have kind of went through these standard regimens. Oh, that doesn't work. Sorry, you have to go to chemo. Oh, that doesn't work. We're out of options. What's really unique and I think very special about UCH and, and the, uh, the, the thoracic oncology team there is that they did take that extra step that, you know, Emily had three biopsies, I think, to try and grow the cells. And when the doctors were really stumped as to why this drug that should be working wasn't they started just testing other things on it. And that's where they came up with this combination that Emily's on today, which is, which is fairly unique. And I don't know of many other places that are actually doing that, that don't just follow that, that standard protocol of, of treatment. Emily and Brian, I'm guessing you had a major decision to make um, because Emily, you were pregnant with your second child and you were on some very strong medication. What were those choices you had to make? So, yeah, I mean, we did. I, I remember my OB walking into the emergency room. She says something like, well, I think we're okay for the next, you know, 48 hours. And I'm thinking, wait, they were actually thinking that they'd have to deliver this baby now, seven weeks early. So ultimately we made the decision that we were going to, he looked good on the ultrasounds and the doctors weren't concerned about an extra 10 days for me. So we um, had to wait to do any further scans because of a risk to the baby, to Brady. And I delivered him at 35 weeks, so about two weeks after my diagnosis. Had the brain scans and the full PET scans that I couldn't do while I was pregnant. And then once they figured out what the cancer was, where it was, um, started on the medication about 10 days after that. For both of you, Brian, it rocked your world as well. How much support have you been able to give Emily? And Emily, how much support have you gotten from Brian over the last couple of years? I know it's a loaded question. Uh, you're both sitting there. Uh, you, you look like you're a very loving couple, but explain to people what you had to do for each other. And primarily, Brian, what you had to do for Emily as she was going through all this. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're both really lucky that our both our families are relatively close. I mean, I'm a Colorado native. Emily's been here for a long time. So we had a we had a ton of support from our families. And um, I think it's it's hard to be the caregiver in this situation because there's really nothing that I could do besides, you know, burst into flames, try to research doctors, which was pretty easy with the University of Colorado background. That's how we actually got connected with with UCH and Dr. Camage. Well, plus there are two young kids. Yeah, I, I'm guessing you had to do a little bit more than than normal because Emily was laid up at times. Yeah, let's let's give my mom, you know, yeah. so I have lots of pillars of I have an army and we're incredibly lucky to have an amazing, amazing community, like Brian said. So I think, you know, Brian is good for the research and, you know, people would ask me questions in the beginning, even sometimes now. And I'm like, I don't really know, like ask him. But to help with the kids and the one that I was like, okay, I need a bagel. I need you to get over here now. And I need someone to hold my hair back. I mean, my mom was our lifeline and I really, for Brian, it was really important to me that he maintained like some normalcy with his job and work. And, um, that was honestly really important to me that I wanted him to be there and have my mom kind of help around the house and have Paige, our older daughter, do play dates. Like I wanted everyone to kind of live normally. Yeah. I think that was important with the kids is was trying to keep some sense of normalcy when the first year, you know, we were in and out of the doctor's office uh, almost weekly. Yeah. It was, we were on this roller coaster of things are working they weren't working. They were working. And, and, you know, it was, we were trying to keep for our older daughter, Paige, who was, you know, four-ish at the time, some structure and some semblance of normalcy. And then, you know, Brady didn't know any different. He was, he came home on oxygen. He was on that for two weeks. And I think that was, you know, that was the challenging part was trying to, to, to keep up with work, to keep some sense of normalcy. And I, I don't think we would have been able to do it without having uh, our family and, you know, Emily's family in particular, very close. Emily and Brian, how do you stay ahead of the curve here? I mean, you're taking these pills that outright are keeping you alive. Um, what are the long-term goals here that you, when you speak to Dr. Kamich, what happens if the pills stop working, God forbid? Yeah. And I think, you know, Brian and I look at it a little differently. I go in, I look at the, you know, your life is like in three month chunks. And I know, you know, Vic, you talked about this too, with your PSA, you know, it's like you get a three month lease on life. And I kind of, this is at the very beginning. I mean, we were like, okay, this is going to change our outlook. And we're going to live every day and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm a little bit more like, I feel good today and I'm going to do what I need to do and enjoy life. And, and I think Brian looks a little bit more at the, the long-term what's plan B. Dr. Kamich helped put this into a ton of perspective where, you know, you sit in that room and you get the, you know, Hey, you, you've got stage four cancer. Like I'll never forget that day. It's the worst room ever, isn't it? That room? It, yeah. It, it's, it, you can't think of anything that's scarier or worse. But, you know, it, I think Dr. Cambridge quickly pivoted to go, you know, hey, you know, we, you, you are out positive, so you do have these drivers. There's a whole army of medicines out there that can last for years. He even used the term decades. And, you know, I, if immediately for me, I think that said, okay, well, there's, there's some hope for time and time leads to more research and more tools, in the toolkit. 
So, you know, we, we, I think Dr. Cambridge would say this, we, we, we immediately asked like, well, okay, what can we do? Like, we've got this amazing network of people from the University of Colorado, the company that I work for that's headquartered in Boulder. How do we raise money? How do we support the research effort for this? And I think for Emily and I, we found a, a, a huge amount of, um, you know, support or, you know, just drive to go do that. And that's where we started, you know, our charity in the golf tournament that's helped to raise a ton of money for this lung cancer. About Colorado half a fund. million dollars in three years. Yeah. You're, you're both heavily into the, the patient awareness thing and, and uh, advocacy regarding lung cancers. So if you will expound a little more on, on what you're doing with the golf tournament and, uh, and everything else you're involved in. I was diagnosed in February and I got a call from this woman who Oh, I know. It was my aunt got connected to her somehow in Chicago. And she's like, you know, I know you have a new baby and I don't know if you can do this, but there's a lung cancer summit every year in Washington, D.C. at the end of April. Like, we'd love for you to come. So I get on a plane. You know, this is pre-COVID when you could just fly. I get on a plane with my seven-week-old baby with a lung cancer diagnosis. And I go to Washington, D.C. And I didn't, my sister, my younger sister, met me there from New York, but I know nobody, you know, there's 300 survivors and caregivers there. And people are talking about how they're advocates and, you know, they have business cards and I'm thinking, what does this even mean? And two and a half years later, I mean, I get calls from longevity, the organization. I did an interview yesterday for their, um, their virtual event. I have a lung cancer friend in Israel his mom is a survivor. And I just kind of got embedded in this community where, you know, I've become a liaison and a advocate for other people. You know, another local mom here texted me last night that her scans were stable. We befriended a couple in Pueblo, unfortunately. She's no longer with us, but um, we just got involved and I got involved and put myself out there. I've told my story a lot. Um, and then, like Brian said, we started doing the Links for Lungs golf tournament um, in a direct effort to raise funds for Dr. Camage's research. And I think it's really twofold. It's really, you know, how do we raise money for Dr. Camage and the, the amazing work that's there? But two, it's you really quickly realize once you get immersed in this world of people that are that have been diagnosed that people are not getting the same standard of care that they are here. Um, Brian, I, for those who don't know, you, you played college football at the University of Colorado and you played a couple of years for the Minnesota Vikings. So I'm guessing you have that intestinal fortitude of a football player to just keep moving on despite the obstacles. Emily, what motivates you? Where does your intestinal fortitude come from? My guess is looking at your two babies <laughs> probably is a tremendous motivator. Uh, are there other things as well? Yeah. I mean, I remember saying to Brian and saying, to, you know, people will say like, how do you do it? You're so strong. And for a while I was like, it was really hard for me to say, yeah, I am strong because I'm like, this is just what you do. You have two young kids. My life isn't over. So yeah, it's, I do it for the kids, but I also, I feel like I have so much to live for. We have great families. We like each other. We have tons of friends and a supportive network. And I'm still able to live a good quality of life. I exercise. So life is good. There's a lot to live for. You guys are an inspiration because this is a, uh, it's a joint effort. Uh, you don't tackle something like this alone. My last question 
is what words of advice uh, for those who finally uh, one day end up in that same room, Brian, and are told what you are told? Because uh, unlike some cancers, you were not a smoker. Les wasn't a smoker either. You just found out you had lung cancer. So what can people do? What can people do when they have that same diagnosis? I mean, I, I think that there, there's hope. Hope. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Have hope. Well, we, we all know, I mean, and, and Vic is a uh, prostate cancer survivor. We all know that the research, the money being thrown at this stuff, um, the brilliant minds that are working on this every day are coming up with new and better treatments all the time. And, and Emily, going back to something uh, you talked about when you went to the longevity meeting, um, I spoke to a number of lung cancer survivors at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. And everybody was wearing a tag that day. And the tags all had the number of years since their first diagnosis. And there were 10 years and 12 years and 20 years. And I recently met with our doctor, Dr. Kamage, and and he said to me, there are new and better treatments coming around the bend all the time. So there is a tremendous amount of hope. And uh, hopefully... You know, we'll all live to be 100 years old, if not if not greater, and we'll watch our kids grow up and watch them have kids, and uh, and everything will be just hunky-dory in the end. Yep, that's my plan. Good luck to both of you. Thank you very much for joining us, and uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll run into each other over at the, uh, at the Anschutz Medical Campus one day. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Thank you. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk to thoracic and lung oncologist Dr. Ross Kamage about Emily's care. Did you know that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month? One in 16 people in the United States will be diagnosed with lung cancer in their lifetime. So there's a good chance you know somebody affected by this disease. Join Longevity Foundation to learn the facts, to spread the word, and to take action to help save lives. Go to longevity.org to learn more. Let me spell that for you. L-U-N-G-E-V-I-T-Y. Dr. Kamage, we spoke with Emily Daniels earlier about her battle with lung cancer, and it, it, there was there was some similarity to my situation. She was diagnosed with stage four and had never smoked a day in her life, just as I had never smoked a day in my life, and I was immediately diagnosed with stage four. Um, you've been helping me. You are her doctor as well. Tell me how you started treating her and what the differences were between her case and my case. Well, so you're right. There are some similarities. And she had a different molecular subtype uh, of lung cancer than, than you. But we were able to find the, the mutation in her cancer. She wasn't born with it. She, it. she acquired it in her cancer cells. And so her initial treatment was, was pretty easy. We put her on a pill, and she had initially a great response, and things, things were fine. And so things seemed to be going well. But then, again, with a certain similarity to you, that that honeymoon didn't last forever, and then her cancer started to get wise um, to the drug. So parts of her cancer started to grow after initially responding. And then I guess, again, the similarity can be pushed. So what we found in Emily had not been described in a human being before. And so uh, we did something that had never been been done. Uh, we were actually able to grow her cancer cells in the laboratory. All of the, the testing that we could do on it didn't show why her cancer cells were resistant. But when we could grow the cells in the laboratory, we could actually see that one particular new signaling pathway had been turned on to, to bypass the first drug. 
So we combined together two drugs, different drugs from the ones you're on, but we still made a novel combination for her. And um, she has had a fantastic response and we're now uh, pushing two years on that. And so it's all about, you know, there isn't one miracle for everybody. You know, you've got to find something and you've got to personalize those miracles to people. And sometimes you have to push the envelope. Yeah, it's, it sounds um, similar to mine as well uh, in that it took them a while. Before I, I was coming to you, it took my other oncologists a while to figure out exactly what I had and the treatment. Um, how long did it take with Emily before you found out how to treat her, before you figured out what her protocol should be? Well, so, so the first time she walked through, I mean, the delay was only because she was pregnant and they were busy sort of putting off her fatigue and shortness of breath to to, to, to carrying her daughter. Um, I think what happened later was, you know, it took a while for the cancer cells to grow in the lab. So we had to set off, you know, that off and running. And then I had to do other things to just keep her in the game until I had the answer. And that probably was two or three months. So what you do is you say, look, I'm going to take a sample of your cancer. I'm going to analyze it. That's going to take some time, but I've got to do other stuff to keep you alive and well, hoping that that's going to give me a more personalized answer. And that, unfortunately, that happened. Uh, you're probably aware that November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month, and uh, a lot of people equate lung cancer with smoking. But from what I can gather, from what I've read, um, somewhere between 60 and 65% of lung cancer diagnoses are, are among people who have never smoked or were smokers so long ago that it shouldn't have impacted them getting the disease. So, so what's going on there? Why are people getting lung cancer if they're not smoking? Do we, do we know the causes yet? We don't 100% know. Um, I mean, you can count it in different ways. So yes, it's, uh, you know, if you say how many people had never smoked, it's probably 10 or 20%. But then when you include the people who smoked for a couple of years in college and 30 years have gone by, I mean, if you include those, then yes, that number becomes much closer to nearly 50%. So sure, we know that smoking can cause lung cancer, but the other things can. We know that air pollution can cause lung cancer. We know that radon gas can cause lung cancer. We know that in certain parts of the world, walk cooking in an enclosed environment can cause it. But for an individual, Sure, you can say what you didn't do, but it's very hard for these other things to say that's what happened to me. We're, we're trying now, as we turn lung cancer into multiple different diseases, to actually see if they group by you know, some of these putative risk factors. You know, do the people who live in high radon areas tend to have one molecular subtype of lung cancer over another? And that's a work in progress. I think lung cancer is, is looked upon as somewhat of a stepchild. Because of what we just talked about, because because people look at lung cancer and say, well, that person was a smoker and he or she deserved to get it. Is it harder to get funding for research on, on lung cancer because of that type of attitude? Oh, yeah, it's grossly underfunded. And, you know, so you can do one of two things with that. You can say, oh, poor me, you know, we don't have enough money to do research, wine, wine, wine. Or you can say, look at what amazing progress we've made with you know, a tenth of the funding for breast cancer. Just imagine what we could do if we were funded at the same level. And I think the people who went into lung cancer, you know, we're all slightly flawed individuals because we were, we were looking for something that, you know, needed us. You know, doctors are all, t you know, flawed individuals and we want to desperately want to make a difference. And I think there were very motivated generations of people who went into looking after lung cancer. I'm just, you know, one, one generation. There's a new and exciting generation beneath me. There are great generations above me. Is there anything a person can do to prevent getting lung cancer? Well, so um, the, 
the trite answer is if you're smoking, give up smoking. But as we've already said, that is of absolutely no use to the people who've never smoked. I think the short answer is no. We don't quite know what the risk factors are enough. I mean, if I said avoid radon gas, you go, well, that's great. How am I supposed to do that? So I can't tell you that at present. I think the future is going to take some of these observations about the molecular basis of lung cancer and turn them into a blood test that says, well, if I find that in your blood, it should not be there. You need to go get a CT scan in the hope of catching these things early. So that's one way to find it early if you find it at all. Are there any common early warning signs for people with lung cancer? Well, the short answer is no, because by the time you've got symptoms, as you know, you know only too well, right. sometimes the cancer's already spread. That goes through my mind a lot. I had some early symptoms. I had numbness in my jaw. I had a raspy voice. I was getting dizzy. But there's, there's no way to see that coming on. There's no way to avoid that coming on unless you get early screening, as you said. Yeah. I mean, the, the trouble is every time a celebrity dies from lung cancer, they, they put out this thing, out, here are the signs of lung cancer. And they're meaningless because they're all so vague. You know, a cough feeling fatigued. And you go, well, that could be anything. So there, there isn't a cardinal sign that says, oh, this is an early thing that you can catch it early. So we're, we're failing people on that regard. Dr. Kamich, in what direction is research for lung cancer going? Is there a specific place that you feel it's important to establish a foothold um, when it comes to funding and research? I think there are a number of key areas where I'm really optimistic they're going to make progress. We've already recognized that personalized medicine has transformed the care of some people with lung cancer where you found specific mutations. But for the people who don't have one of those mutations, you know, they're, they're still relying on chemotherapy and immunotherapy. But there's a role for personalized medicine there. We know that immunotherapy, despite all the TV adverts about it, doesn't work in everybody. And of course, there's, there's not a lot of business incentive to shrink your market size, but I think that would be a huge help to figure out who really are deriving benefits and then maybe find out who will need other kinds of immunotherapy and different drugs in the future. So that's one. The other is when you go on any of these targeted therapies and you develop resistance, a greater understanding of which other pathways are turned on and how, just like in Emily, just like in you, to allow us to rationally combine together drugs, I think, is, is the future. And I think part of that is recognizing that if we just look under the lamppost, we're only going to find very simplistic changes in the same pathway you started with. But the future is going to be about looking at every other bypass pathway. And then the third thing, the third is kind of the invisible elephant in the room. You can take people with one of these mutations. You can put them on a targeted therapy. They can have an amazing response. Everything disappears from the scan. But I know if I were to stop the drug, the cancer would start to grow again. And if I put you back on the drug, it would shrink down again. So the, the stuff which is suppressed is still sensitive, but not dead. Now, later, it changes and grows in the presence of the drug. That's a different thing. We're good at looking at that. But what is that mechanism whereby the cancer, which is still sensitive, can somehow a tiny fraction still survive to become the nidus from which future resistance occurs? And that's really hard to study because there's nothing on the scan. But that's called molecular persistence. And we're just starting to get insights into what that mechanism is. And once we do that, maybe we can cure lung cancer. Can you do that quickly? <laughs> Hold on. Let, let me see. I can fit you in my calendar this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Kamich, going back to Emily Daniels, 
What has made her so strong? What has made her so unstoppable? Emily is not afraid to stand up and be counted. She is not afraid to say, look, you want to you wanna experiment on me? You want to do something that's never been done in humans? Bring it on. And the simple fact that we proved that the basic test couldn't find what Emily's resistance mechanism was, and yet later we found it by doing fancy stuff in the lab, opens up a whole new field of research. And Emily is the poster child for something which has not yet been described. Yet she shows it's possible. She shows that there are mechanisms of resistance that if we could find them, we could act on and control people's cancer, adding years to their life. Dr. Kamage, as always, once again, uh, you've been a regular on this podcast over the last seven, eight months. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate your insight. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to We Are Unstoppable, sponsored by the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You want more Unstoppable Stories? Subscribe to our podcast wherever you find and listen to podcasts. You can even ask your smart speaker to play We Are Unstoppable Podcasts. And you can visit us at our website, unstoppablepodcasts.com, for more episodes and ways to subscribe. That's unstoppablepodcasts.com. Subscribe today. 